Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 22, and reading verses 34 to 40. So with joy and thanksgiving that we have the living Word of God, let us attend to the public reading and the hearing of the text this morning in the Gospel according to Matthew. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees and gathered together, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The Christian faith is... uh... In many respects, a very complex uh, engagement. If you think of the Bible, there's uh, some three languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. All the issues of uh, geography. There are hundreds and hundreds of laws, how to understand them. Great questions about miracles, theology. Just simply reminding you that the Christian faith is, uh, again, uh, very, uh, very complex. but it is also very simple. And Jesus uh, this morning will take the complex and make it incredibly simple so that you can understand the greatness of the Christian faith. It is Passion Week. And it is a great illustration in Passion Week that we come to the reality of an essential element of understanding the Christian faith, and that is that we are eminently loved by God. And that is why Christ is undergoing Passion Week and all the trifles of the men who come uh, to uh, unseat Him and to beat Him down. It is eminently important that you realize as a Christian that you are loved of God. And it is a radical love, and that is why we are looking at the Incarnation and Passion Week, but it's also an eternal love. In eternity past, God loved you, set His affections upon you, set His satisfactions, His joy, and delight upon you. It's very difficult for us to get our hands around that, but again, the Scriptures are very clear. We won't look at it this morning, but I uh, simply uh, ask you to take it by faith that you are loved in eternity past. 
Ephesians chapter 1. Before the foundation of the world, God set His love upon you in Jesus Christ. And that is why this morning, He is in the final week of His life. So we are soon going to see love in action. Cross. Not just a hypothetical event, is it? It really can't be that. God doesn't deal in hypothetical. God is God. He has full knowledge of everything past, present, and future. He doesn't deal in contingencies. You and I live in the hypothetical. We live in a contingent world. God doesn't. Whatever He does is right. Whatever action He undertakes is for His glory. And for you as a Christian, when He set upon His love upon you in eternity past, in Christ, He's coming to get you, to buy you, to own you. And this morning, I trust to give you an inkling of the grandeur of the measure of His love for you in the cross. We're going to see that in the sacrifice of the cross. Uh, the cross is an expression of the absolute necessity of the atonement. God did not have to save you. But when He chose to save you, He could save you in no other way than the cross. And so Jesus Christ becomes the God-man to go to the cross. It is an incredible story of sacrifice and redemption. He could save you in no other way. And the Son voluntarily came to go to the cross for you. We oftentimes recite John 3.16 as we should. God so loved the world. Put your name in there. God so loved... Again, think of your name. God so loved me that He gave the Son. The giving of the Son is an expression of the love of God. The cause of the atonement, the cause of the sacrifice, the cause of the incarnation is the eternal love of God that will span the eternities from past to present to future. It's incredible. We live in a world desperate for love. Christians have it in Jesus Christ. The fullness of the measure of the love of God. Nothing at all withheld because He gave it all upon the cross. Very expensive love. Because He loved you. Expressed it in the cross. The Christ will spend Himself withholding nothing to buy His people out of a fallen world. Let's turn very quickly as one of many expressions of the love of God to us in Jesus Christ to Ephesians in the fifth chapter. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We are beloved of God. He has satisfaction and delight in us. We're to imitate Him. To love Him back. Paul will refine that manner of imitation uh, to walking in love. In other words, we love God, but we... We love, period. We love people that we encounter in our lives as an expression that the loved love back. The two exist in an incredible tandem. 
you, you, you cannot separate them. You cannot parse them. We can look at them theologically in separation, but they exist as a seamless whole. We are loved of God. We walk in love. People we encounter catch a measure of the love of God in Jesus Christ as we love them. And so, Paul says, walk in love. Now notice the comparative clause. Most instructive. How do we walk in love? How do we do that? Well, notice the comparison. Just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. That one of the ways we love or we walk in love is we give to people. Not just money, but our time, our affections. Maybe a time to write a card. I mean, I know there's 10,000 ways to express love. We engage them all. Because we understand that we are beloved of God, that He loved us and therefore we're to walk in love. That love is to envelop us, own us, control us, so people see a measure, vague though it may be at times, of the love of God. And it is a love totally different than the world's love. It's a love expressed in giving, just as Christ gave Himself for us. He loved us, and we know of that love because of the cross, because He gave. He spent Himself. We know that He spent Himself because of the sacrificial language here, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. In other words, the cross was pleasing to God. In other words, the love of Christ upon the cross satisfied God. Totally and completely. We don't think of the sacrifice of the atonement in that way. We think it's a contingent event. No, God was satisfied. The cross, the atonement, satisfied the wrath of God. A love driven to sacrifice and a sacrifice driven by love. Well, I have the time to read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but again, simply reminding you that love is expressed in giving, not taking. By the way, to the young people, I know we live in an age of incredible sexual revolution, but people come along and use the word love. Uh, remember that there are many takers in the world. The essence of love is giving and sacrifice. It costs the giver. Christ didn't get a lot of gain in this transaction. Uh, but it pleased the Father and that was sufficient gain. So our love is, uh, is a reminder that we are to love, we're to walk in love, and our love is, of course, different from the world's. Uh, and so in verses 3 to 7, Paul describes the love of the world in the language of immorality, in coarse language. I simply compress it, locker room talk. I used to think sometimes that the high school boys' locker room was talk that was simply confined to that place, but it's everywhere, in the office, in the streets, at work. It's just simply everywhere. It's enveloped our culture. The coarseness of the love of the world that you can describe it as not love, it's just lust, and it's everywhere magazines, television, uh, but it is a base reminder that the world does not know love, but you and I know it because God knew us in eternity past and loved us and in time expressed that love upon the cross.
Paul just simply says, don't be partakers with them because they know not the love of God. But you and I are to walk in love as a marked example to the world that love is much more than physical passion. Certainly there's an example here of one of the ways we walk in love that we, I've suggested, we give. We give to others when sometimes it's very difficult. It's hard to find time to write a card. It's hard to find time to pray for someone that you know is in trouble. It's hard not to return evil for evil. But though we did evil to God, He gave to us love. We receive and we give back. And so geographically, temporally, it's Passion Week. Christ is one day closer to the hatred of the world and the cross. But He goes there because He loved you. To die for all of your sins, even the absence of faith, so that even your faith was paid for on the cross. Love of God, securing everything, leaving nothing to chance, nothing to contingency. We know that because God the Father was satisfied because He received a fragrant aroma. Again, sacrificial language, wrath averted, everything paid for. Incredible love. But the love are made loving of God as defined by God. And so we're going to look now in our text, verses 34 to 38, that love is a seamless, unifying principle of the Christian faith amidst all of its complexities. And it's seen chiefly in the vertical relationship from top down, God loving us. And of course, there's a bottom up to that that we love back because love returns. It has to return. If love doesn't return, then we don't fully understand the love of God. We can separate the two theologically. We love God and God loved us, but they are seamless events. Logically, we could separate them. I'm simply telling you that God loved you. And the natural, instinctive response, understanding but a modicum of that love and the sacrifice of the cross is we love back. The loved love back vertically to God. Verses 34 to 38. A lawyer comes and he's going to try to catch Christ in a gotcha moment. What's the greatest commandment? Well, in the Old Testament law code, there were 613 commandments. You know them all, I'm sure. Contemporary Judaism does, and it's desperate to try to fulfill them all. Would that they understood the love of God and the sacrificial system. He wants to know which one Christ considers to be the greatest for the purpose, again, of catching Christ in the horns of a dilemma. He is looking at the individual parts. Christ does something that's incredible genius. He takes him to the whole. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul. It's a wonderful application here, if I may. Uh, 
sometimes life in all of its complexities. And I think life is very complex. Certainly in this technological world in which we live. Sometimes the complexity can become uh, discouraging and distracting. And so I encourage you to take moments when you feel just overwhelmed by it all to step back and realize, I don't know how this is all going to work out. But God has loved me in Jesus Christ and He will never stop loving me. It's the synthesis of it all. It's the synthesis that heaven brings to this gotcha question. He will never stop loving me. In all of my sin, He never stops loving me. He ran me to ground upon the cross and dispatched His Spirit to pursue me. been reading to my dear mother, 73rd Psalm. You will guide me by your counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. That's the love of God. Book of Hebrews, leading many sons to glory. There's no chance in that. What is the basis of God leading you to glory but His eternal, effectual love that breaks upon you in Jesus Christ upon the cross? All of the difficulties of life, mental, physical, health, spiritual, it is enough to say the entire synthetic moment, God loves you. Jesus takes the lawyer to the whole. The synthesis of that event is captured in an Old Testament quotation. Yes, the Old Testament is a great story of the love of God for His people. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. You have your Old Testament, I trust you do. I encourage you to turn there. Perhaps remain there for a while. Go back and forth. It is the starting point of all of life. It's a reminder that love is our response to God loving us. It is a response to deliverance from Egypt and the promised land. It is our response to deliverance from spiritual Egypt that is all about us even in this age. The wicked Pharaoh who seeks to recover us to serve him, and yet the love of God cocoons us and protects us all the way to heaven. In the new Exodus, the greater Moses. Eternity. That God's relationship with us becomes our relationship with Him. The immediate context, again, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your might. Immediate context is the great Shema of Israel. Shema is uh, the Hebrew imperative to hear. So what are we to hear? Hear, O Israel, verse 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a pure statement of monotheism. There is one God, and He is utterly unique. The Lord our God. Moses uses two names for God, Yahweh, 
which is a covenant name for God. You cannot understand the love for God until you grasp the fullness of the measure of the reality that God has an eternal covenant of redemption. If you're a Christian, your name was in that covenant. He cut a deal with you even when you weren't there. Covenanted to love you. We know that from the name of God, Yahweh. Elohim. Elohim is a name for God, in my own mind, it's most associated with God the Creator. Think of it, God loves us as the Creator. He creates life. Genesis 1, He creates life. John chapter 1, He creates life through Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word creates us. The Word speaks, and we come into spiritual creation through Jesus Christ. The love of God. The covenant God, the Creator God. And the response to the great Shema, Israel. Is our response, since God is one and He is unique, we're to love Him with all our hearts, mind, soul, body, and spirit, understanding, passion, affections. Nothing is left out of the string of words that are there. Jesus is using the Old Testament theologically to establish a timeless truth. We are to love only this God. Every other God is to be forsaken. Of all the gods of the world, we're to say no. Uh, I have a measure of controlled road rage when I see that bumper sticker coexist. It's a lie from hell. We're Christians. We don't coexist. We share the gospel. We don't coexist. We advance the kingdom. Why do we share the gospel? Why do we advance the kingdom? Why do we love God? Because He loved us. No coexistence there. That's the world's definition of love. Ours is different. It's based upon one God who loved us and therefore we love in the radical way that He loved us upon the cross. We can do nothing but to suppress the gospel because love breaks out in our lives like the chicken pox or the mumps. Invades our souls. There's a response because the loved love back vertically the God who loved them first. Again, we forsake everything else. When it comes to the divine, we forsake all others. I love that phrase in the marriage ceremony. Taking only under him, forsaking all others. We're rapidly losing that concept because we, well, just our culture. But we need to understand as Christians, God will never divorce us and neither would we ever divorce him. We love Him back because we understand a measure of His love for us. With God, there can be no peers or competitors. We see this in the manner that the love is expressed. Again, we, we hear that God is one. We have one God. And therefore, how do we respond to the one God? We love Him. All your heart, all your soul, and all your might or power. The reference to heart, soul, and mind in my own mind are synonyms, all saying the same thing. 
I don't think you're a multifaceted person. You are, but there's a seamlessness to your existence. And I think heart, soul, and mind are all synonyms. Moses is just simply ransacking every thought we might have about our internal lives, our inner beings, to express our seamless love of God. Synonyms for the inner man referencing the unity of our being in intellect, desires, and passions. God was passionate about us in eternity past, and so the cross is called the end of Passion Week. Ever thought about that? Are you passionate about things? Suspect you are. Passionate about a sports team. Passionate about your spouse. Passionate about your children. Well, be passionate about God because of the cross and His passion for you. Instinctive response. The loved love back vertically. The God who loved us first. In Deuteronomy, the word for might or power is a word speaking to the highest of degree. You can't dial it back. I understand there's times in lives where get incredibly emotional. There are other times where perhaps we're a bit you know, cold. And, but uh, I think the longer we live, the more the RPMs on the tachometer of our souls moves to the red zone. And never goes back. Progression to it, to be sure, but uh, simply an automobile metaphor. The more you learn and study the atonement, the more it owns you. And vertically, you love back because God loved you. Mark adds in the synoptic parallel with all of your strength so that effort is summoned. Takes effort to love God. Takes effort to love anything. Sometimes hard work, costly work, dirty work, grimy work. Think of Passion Week and the cross. Hard work, hard stuff. At some point, emotion utterly vanquished and the strength of Christ innervated. He left nothing because of His love for you. Loved you. I love the words of John. He loved you to the end. Held nothing back. Our response is to encompass the entirety of our existence so that the totality of our lives is engaged. It's a claim upon us, the whole of us. The entirety of our being embraces all of God. God is so great that He does not brook half-heartedness or bits and pieces here and there of affection. Again, I understand that that is a progressive event. So study the atonement. It comes to own you. He does not take to being shared. Let the world say coexist with all of its religions. Reject it. God is advancing His kingdom. Anything other than Him will be utterly destroyed. That we are body and soul. Here, Moses is dealing with the inner part of man, a number of synonyms. The constituent part of the inner man is the mind. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, the renewing of our mind. We're not conformed to the world, 
But we renew our minds, understanding that we now are the sacrifice because we love God back. He loved us in the cross and we love Him back. We present our bodies a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they sacrificed animals. In the New Testament church, we sacrifice ourselves. We become the sacrifice. God sacrificed His Son and we sacrifice back in the love of God. Renewing of our minds to understand who we are. That we're the new sacrifice. That all of our lives are spent in the service of God, the love of God. Again, I'm not trying to denigrate emotions. I'm just simply suggesting to you that emotions flow naturally from the mind understanding who we are. It's a mental exercise. And knowledge is therefore a constituent part of love. Learning the mind is food for love. The more you learn about God, the more you give back. The more you learn that you are loved, you love Him back vertically in our relationship with Him. Again, the extent is total and all-encompassing. I think the point of the text is all. All your heart, nothing left out. All of your mind, nothing left out. All of your spirit, all of your might. It's a summons to the seamlessness of what we give back to God in light of what He gave to us. Deuteronomy love is a spiritual exercise, again, of the inner man. The lesson I bring to you is that the subjective follows the objective. The more we understand the objective reality of love, the more subjectively we, we love back. Here we know it's a spiritual exercise, Deuteronomy chapter 6, engaging the inner man, verse 5, because it includes specific actions. Love acts. Let's look at those actions in verses 7 to 9. The wholeness of the love of God is it embraces the entirety of the family. And these words, verse 6, which I am commanding to you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and daughters, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign upon your hands. They shall be as frontals upon your forehead. And you shall write them upon the doorpost of your house and upon your gates. In other words, one of those specific ways that we express the love of God in action, we teach our children. In all of our activities, the phrase lying down and rising up is a merism. It just simply means the entirety of our daily events. Constantly teaching. It's an expression of our love for the one God. We pass it on through our generations. What we typically say in America, well, is, you know, I'm, I'm an example to my children, but they choose their own way. That's not love, that's hatred. We teach them the love of God, the one true God. We don't let them go their own way. What kind of love is that? Well, I love you so much, I'm just going to let you wander self-direct throughout your life. If you want to play in the street, play in the streets. That's not hatred. That's, that's not love, it's hatred. That's Bizarre, but that's we, we think we're so progressive and smug in America. We are lying down and are rising up teaching our children to love the one God in light of 
what he did in redemption from Egypt. It should be a sign on your hands and on your forehead, meaning in your doing and thinking. The Jews do this literally. They tie things on their hands. They tie things on their forehead. My friend, that's the easy part. It's a doing and thinking. That's what the point of the text is. Write it on our minds. Write it on our hands. In other words, we do love and we think love. In light of the fact that God loved us. I love the fact we write it on our doorposts. Please do not go home. And put a flag in your yard says that, well, I've, I've, God is loved here. No, just do it. Live it. In light of the fact that God loved you by sending the living Christ. That all might know, in light of your love for God, that in your home, only God is loved. All others are forsaken. One of the challenges for us as Christians is we have a way, because we learn it from our culture, to compartmentalize our lives. Moses is after a seamless whole, and so is Jesus. Very careful of compartmentalizing your life. In our love for God, there's really no Sunday or Monday. There's every day of the week. I know our love for God might intensify on a Sunday by coming to church, but it should be every day of the week we love God. We sometimes compartmentalize our lives when I, I think I hear the phrase, uh, we love God with our hearts and then we also love God with our minds. I, I don't understand that language. To me, they're a seamless whole referencing the inner man. Again, I understand the progress to love. I understand the emotion of love. It's all driven from the inner man reference to the renewing of our minds. Our minds must grasp the essential nature of the atonement. Love will naturally follow. Instinctive response of the soul regenerated by God understanding love of Christ. The seamlessness of it. It's everything we do. Nothing is a mundane event in our lives. It's all an expression of love of God. Caring for our homes, our children, our health. Being stewards. Butcher, baker, or candlestick maker, we are the priests of the living God who love Him sacrificially. Our world makes everything seemingly cheap. There's nothing cheap in the life of the Christian, regardless of our calling and vocation. Above that calling and vocation is that we are the priests of God who are loving Him back because He loved us first. Reminder of this in terms of the Gospel 1st Johannine Epistle, 1st John chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. We love because of the new birth. God loved us, caused us to be born again. The instinctive response is we love Him back. Vertically.
Cause to effect, the new birth is the cause of it all. The point of the lawyer is to be hung up on all the details in a competition of sorts. He's compartmentalized it all. Jesus synthesizes the law to him. One word, love. He's declaring the abiding principle of every law is the love of God. The lawyer knows the code. Jesus knows the whole that brings it all together. Unifying principles, love. The lawyer is consumed by the details and complexity. Jesus understands seamless reality of it all. Modern day Judaism does not understand that. They're driven to all 613. They don't understand the love of God. Illustration of this uh, happened in New York City a number of years ago. As you know, uh, certain parts of Judaism, they do no work on the Sabbath. But they've got to provide food. They've got to feed their children. And so a young mother uh, puts food on a hot plate. Uh, she does it before the Sabbath. See a hot meal there. What do you think the problem is of putting food on a hot plate? It was a fire. And all six of her children perished in the fire. She was all consumed with the details, the itsy-bitsy parts that created a fire that destroyed her children. Point of the love, the Sabbath rest of God is in Jesus Christ. We rest in Him because He finished His work and sat down at the right hand of God the Father having vanquished sin that belonged to us and setting us free. Sad. Everybody thinking Christian life is some self-help religion. Understand the atonement. Instinctive response is to love God back. And so, if you're all worried about the law and the 613 commandments, uh, just synthesize it in the way that Jesus does. God loved you, love Him back. You will do instinctively certain things. I understand in the progress of your sanctification, things will change and things will get different. You'll refine things and do things better. But the ultimate seamless unifying reality is the love of God. And if you understand that you're loved, you will love back. You cannot separate those two. A seamless whole. The loved love back. Vertically. Now Jesus does something radical for the lawyer. He takes it to the horizontal. He ups the ante for the lawyer who tries to sharpen his mind upon the mind of Jesus. And that, my friend, is a dangerous thing to do. Key here is the priority of the vertical. But if you love God, you will eventually fulfill love for your neighbor and your brother. You cannot, of course, and will not have love for your neighbor apart from loving God. That's where the world utterly fails. Our culture and our entire governmental system is desperately trying to establish the horizontal. It cannot because it knows not the vertical. We know the vertical in Christ and the cross. And therefore, we ought to be the shining example loving our neighbor. God loved us. It's really kind of tragic to see the way that the world tries to desperately use government to love war. And I'm not necessarily preaching a sermon against government. I believe in government, Romans chapter 13. But ultimately, 
man can never love properly and intensely and aright apart from the vertical and understanding God loving us in Jesus Christ. That the world rejects, we embrace. So as a church, we can properly embrace love of neighbor. In the biblical order, the two adhere together and the absence of the one will establish the perversion of the other. That, my friend, is the world. The perversion of everything about love. Simply can't understand love because it knows not the vertical. So Jesus adds to the summary of the law in our love for God and the parallel duty to love our neighbor. He quotes Leviticus 19.18. Again, if you have your Old Testament, and I trust you do, uh, Leviticus, the 19th chapter. 18th verse. Look at the sentence that follows the conjunction, but you shall love your neighbors yourself, I am the Lord. The context is a long string of things that were not to do. At least the Old Testament saints were not to do. Uh, you were not to reap the entire harvest. You were to leave the corners because there were poor people who needed the corners and they needed the harvest. And for whatever reason in life, they're found poor, but a meal is left for them to go into the field. And so you don't take the entire harvest. You were an inefficient farmer in the Old Testament as an expression of the love of God to leave a meal for your neighbor when they are found in trouble economically. You are not to oppress or curse the less fortunate. You care for them because you at some time in your life might be found less fortunate and are in need of the love of neighbor. You're not to slander or bear grudges. I mean, what is our entire political system but not one long-lasting eternal grudge? It's fine that the world system, the church is different. Ought to be different if it truly understands that God bore no grudge to us in Jesus Christ. He didn't have to save us. But choosing to save us, He loved us in the cross. And Moses then summarizes it all in the unifying principle, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. To this duty, he adds this great appendage of the identity of God, reminding us that God loved us. God loved Israel and set them free from Pharaoh. A reminder to me of uh, the great injunction of, of uh, the Apostle Paul. Romans 13. Oh, no man, nothing but love. Uh, but certainly, uh, in the 10th, Tenth uh, verse of the thirteenth chapter: Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. The spirit and intent of it all, of all of the details, fulfilled by love. The irony is that the shyster lawyer totally misses the tandem. He thinks he's going to up the ante on Christ. Christ is just up the ante on him. Love God, love your neighbor. He didn't ask for the second part of the answer, but that's what he got. Because he doesn't understand love. You know, by the way, if you're a Christian and you have this notion that you can compartmentalize love just in the vertical, you do not understand the seamless whole. The vertical and the horizontal reminder of the cross. We love God and we love our neighbor. 
this shyster lawyer thought that he could love God apart from loving his neighbor. So he gets a lesson, tragic lesson. We know this from the Luke in parallel. Luke chapter 10, 29th verse. Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He thinks he's just caught Christ. That's a difficult question. Who is my neighbor? So Christ tells a story. Priest and Levite come across a wounded man, turn their back on him, because they are so concerned that if they touch him, it will impair their ritual service to God. That's incredible. That's like leaving the hot plate on with food on it. I mean, that's, that's utter compartmentalization of love. You're walking by a man and he's wounded, and you're thinking about becoming richly uh, unclean so you can't love God? They, he's forgotten the tandem Christ braces him with the reality that a Samaritan goes by who they thought did not love God, but he cares for the man and renders surety for his care at the end. He understood both. The Samaritan, therefore, knows more about loving God than the Orthodox Jew because they exist in tandem. Love of God, love and neighbor. The vertical and horizontal or tandem there's never one without the other. Israel's failure in the days of Jesus. They profess to love God, but they hate His Son. It's impossible. Jesus establishes a new order. It's our order at Grace Bible Church. The loved are made loving of both God and neighbor. Application, one of the reasons you come to church is not just to hear the text of the Scripture, sing the great hymns of the church, but to observe and to be aware that all of us are fighting battles. Sometimes the battle is more intense than others, but nonetheless, we are smack dab in the middle of great spiritual warfare. And we need to hear about the love of God in the cross. We also need to Gather the love of God to the members of the church. Observe, watch. If you read in the paper that a certain company is shut down and you know that someone in our church has worked for that company, guess what? You have just learned of economic distress. You've got to pray for that person. Maybe give them a call. Maybe write them a card. You hear that someone is sick. Again, you're engaged in love. We are desperately in need of love of neighbor should never depart from our vocabulary or our practice at the church. This is not a lecture hall in and of itself. It's a place where love abounds. We learn both the vertical and the horizontal. And we should never, ever compartmentalize one at the expense of the other. Now, I'm not suggesting you have to stick your nose in everybody's business. I'm just suggesting use your mind and observe. There's... Uh, Married partner here without a spouse, you can probably suspect over time that that practice continues. There's something wrong. If uh, 
If there's a mother or father here with children, guess what? There's always a need for prayer. You will never graduate from that state in life. And you ought to pray for one another's children because they're desperately in need of it and they're desperately in need of your love and your kindness and your affection. The world's going to beat them off all its own. Let's be different. The church. Love. Seamless whole. The love. Love. God loved us first. And so we love back. Both God and neighbor. May God be gracious to us in the understanding of the new heart and the new creation and the new birth that our love might grow as a testimony to the world. All who drive by this church that only God in Jesus Christ is loved here. And when you come here, you are loved in the community of the saints.